Good morning, Providence. Praise the Lord. And before we praise our King in the preaching of the Word, let us go to Him in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we open the Word this morning, we praise You for listening to our prayers. And we praise You for this opportunity that we have to learn more about You and how You have compassion for Your people and how You faithfully deliver us through difficult times. So this morning we ask that you would clear our minds, that you would free us of any distractions, and that we would be receptive to the workings of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would help us to grow in a love and affection for you as we read your word. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 116. This morning we're going to be reading from the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 116. And so in honor of God's word, please stand with me as we read. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant, I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds, and I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Lord, of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. You may be seated. The book of Psalms is the longest book in the Bible at 150 chapters. And because of its size, it's natural to want to structure the book in such a way that we can make sense of its meaning, and that we can more easily navigate some of the themes. One of the ways to structure psalms is to classify psalms in different types. And so we have psalms of wisdom or instruction. There are psalms of lament. There are imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms are when the psalmist cries out to God that he would rain down destruction on his enemies. Now, the elders, we're not going to go through all 150 psalms, but we do want to expound upon the different types of psalms so that you can more productively and richly benefit as you study the psalms in your own readings. Now, Psalms 116 is found in a group of psalms that begins in Psalm 113 and extends all the way through Psalm 118. And these psalms are often called the Hallel Psalms. 
Now, Hallel Psalms get their name from the opening word in Psalm 113, which is Alleluia. And if you ever stand outside the praise factory or maybe mission kids and you hear the kids singing or screaming, Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. Half of them are usually sitting down and the other half are standing up and screaming, Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. Now I won't ask the church to do that this morning. We could have the upper balcony do that and then we could have the lower level, but... uh, could get the blood moving, but for the sake of time, we're, we're, we're just going to, to keep moving on. But hallelujah, it means praise the Lord. And Brother Jason was kind enough to put those words in several of the songs that we sung this morning, praise ye the Lord. And so Hallel Psalms are a group of psalms that praise God for what he has done, not just in the lives of his individual people and the individual psalmist, but also for his nation, for the nation of Israel. And this psalm was particularly treasured by the Jewish people, and according to tradition, it was often sung during the Passover. Now we read in Mark 14, verse 26, that says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so it's possible that Psalm 116 was sung by Jesus himself and his disciples right before Christ went to the cross. And so this morning we are going to study a psalm that may have been one of the last songs that Jesus sung before his death. And so while this psalm is a, an expression of love, of adoration by an individual to the Almighty God, it was treasured by the Jewish people because it celebrated God and his power and strength from delivering him, the, the nation of Israel out of the land of Exodus, or out of, through the Exodus, out of the land of Egypt. But we can also take glory and read this psalm today and praise God that he has delivered us from our bondage of sin. That Christ has conquered sin and death, and he's delivered us from the wrath of God. Now, this psalmist's expression of praise and love, it goes beyond just a simple statement of, I love you, Lord. Verse 1 opens with, I love you, Lord. He goes further and he explains why he loves the Lord. Just like Elizabeth Barrett Browning reflects the same idea in the sonnet, how do I love me? How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. A love that is not justified, that's not rooted and grounded in truth, is a love that is going to wither and fade. It's not going to endure. And we can consider this psalm in, in roughly two parts. In the first part of the psalm, the psalmist is praising God for his mercy, his deliverance, that he listened to his cries. And in the second part of the psalm, we see how the psalmist responds to God's deliverance. He describes his own response when he says, I will become as God's servant. I will pay my vows to the Lord and I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. The psalmist's words matched his actions. Just as Matthew 7, 17 says, a good tree produces good fruit, a genuine love for the Father is going to spur devotion and service to his kingdom. Now, who is the psalmist? When we read through the Psalms, we often see a title right at the top that says, a Psalm of David a psalm of Asaph, or sometimes a a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. But God didn't provide that information in in this chapter. Now, if God wanted us to know for certain who the psalmist was, he would have told us. So instead of speculating this morning on who the psalmist might be, I want to talk about the words that we do know. These are written by an individual who clearly was struggling, who clearly went through a time of affliction, And he is crying out to God and articulating the love that he had for God. 
He had such joy that it seems that toward the end of the psalm, he was praising God in front of an audience at the temple. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you can perhaps see yourself in the shoes of this psalmist. It was probably the sandals at the time of, of this psalmist. Because mature Christians have suffered affliction. They've gone through attacks from enemies. They've witnessed the death of loved ones and many other adversities. And so this morning, even though we don't know the author, we're going to look at this psalms first by understanding how the individual came to a knowledge of, of, of prayer and adoration for the Lord's deliverance. We're going to see how the Lord delivered the nation of Israel. And finally, we can see how believers ourselves can praise God through the salvation that we have through Christ Jesus. And so that leads to the first point of the sermon, which is we should love the Lord because our God listens. Our God listens. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist begins his list of reasons for loving God by saying that God has both heard his voice and supplications in verse 1, and in verse 2 it says he inclined his ear. So two different phrases are being used to convey two different concepts. And we can think about inclining his ear to mean he listened. Now if you listen to somebody, that implies that you heard someone. So why does the psalmist distinguish these two types of, of concepts here. Well, quite simply, we serve a living God. We serve a living God. God is alive. As the Newsboys song sings, God's not dead. He is surely alive. The angel in the tomb told the women, he is not here. He has risen. Go and share the good news. And that's the good news that we're sharing this morning, that we serve a Lord that the cross could not hold, The grave could not contain him, and death could not defeat him. Christ is alive, and we serve that God. And the Israelites knew what it was like to serve a God who heard, a God who was alive, as opposed to the gods who could not hear. When we read in Deuteronomy, it says, You yourselves know how we lived in the land of Egypt, how we passed through the nations on the way here. You saw the abominations and the idols among them, made of wood and stone, of silver and gold. These man-made gods of wood and stone, they could not see or hear or eat or smell. Now, during the reign of King Ahab, the province of the false god knew the consequences of serving gods who could not hear. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. Read this passage where Elijah and the prophets of Baal... They put sacrifices, and it says, at the time of the offering of the oblation, in verse 36, chapter 18, verse 36, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, Lord. Just as the psalmist cries out in this passage, answer me, he cries out, Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their, back, their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal and let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And so we serve a God who can answer with fire. 
And it might be easy to mock these prophets of, of Baal. We see other examples in the Old Testament of how the nations that surrounded Israel were worshiping these gods, that they made statues of gold, of wood. But yet, even here in Cincinnati, if we go down a few miles on I-71, we can see a temple right off of I-71. And it's full of idols that are dead, full of these pieces of wood and gold that they cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot answer. And there are people that are crying out to these gods, please hear me in my cry, in my affliction. And what a tragedy that it's just not people here in Cincinnati, but there are hundreds of millions of people all over the world that are in that same circumstance, without hope, crying out to gods who cannot hear. But we have a God who hears, and a God who hears offers hope. And so in verse 2, the psalmist doesn't just describe a God who hears, but a God who listens. And a God who listens is a personal God. And so we serve a personal God. How many times have we said to our children, you're hearing me, but you're not listening? And men, we've, we've heard this phrase before too from our wives, you hear me? Or are you listening to me? You see, a person that listens does more than just hear. It doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. They respond. And so we serve a God who does more than hear us. We serve a God who listens to our cries. Our God is not the God of Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was a deist. He believed in a creator God, a distant creator that just wound up the clocks of time and just started it and didn't intervene. A God that didn't have a personal relationship with any of his creation. But we worship a God who intervened, who stepped into this world, and how gracious and merciful it was for him to intervene. Because without his intervention, we would be hopeless on our way to eternal judgment. And yet we read in John chapter 1 that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This immortal, invisible, God-only wise the most blessed, the most glorious, the ancient of days, he became flesh. And he adopted us into his family. And we can call God our father. And we can call Christ our brother. We have a relationship with God. And a personal God will respond to injustice that's caused to his people. What father wouldn't answer the cries of his son, who's in distress, who's in anguish, And we hear a God who listens to the cries of his beloved children, and he answers. He responds. Now, there are parallels in Psalm 116 to Psalm 18. Those were the words that we read here at the beginning of the service. And so let's expound upon this text and illustrate Psalm 116 through the Bible in Psalm 18. We can use the Bible to illustrate the Bible. So turn with me to Psalm 18, if you have it, and beginning in verse 4. I'm going to read Psalm chapter 18, verse 4, and just again, listen to this. You heard it this morning. Listen to the similarities between the two psalms. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and to my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. And so while we don't know the author of Psalm 116, we can clearly see similar language to Psalm 18. We read in verse 6, He heard my voice. My cries reached his ears. 
But unlike Psalm 116, with which answered and God responded, Psalm 18 offers this extremely vivid language, extremely vivid picture of how God responded to David. This here is a psalm of, of David. We know the author in Psalm 18. We read, smoke went out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. And so this imagery of fire evokes the story we just discussed about Elijah and the prophets of, of Baal, and that we see how God was angry. He has a personal relationship with with David, and he's angry at the injustice that David is experiencing. And God is actually going to use David to destroy his enemies. The same hands that David are going to use, David will use are the ones that God is not going to allow to build the temple because they have spilt blood. Now, if we know that Psalm 18 is a psalm of David, we can, we can imagine the, the anguish and the torment that, that David is in because he had submitted to God's will. He had been anointed as the future king of Israel, and he was obedient, obedient to the instructions of King Saul. And in fact, if we look at just some of the things that Saul had asked David to do, he asked David to play the harp for him. Saul was troubled, and he said, David, would you come and, and calm my spirit? And what was Saul's response? He threw a spear at David. He actually threw a spear more than once. I guess that was his, his weapon of choice. He, he grabs his spear and throws it at David. Saul also asked David to bring a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to redeem the hand of his daughter in marriage. Now, now I thought it was difficult to talk to my father-in-law about marrying his daughter. Um, but Saul takes this to a whole other level. But not only did David do what he was asked, he brings back 200. And you know what Saul's response is? He gets together and he crafts a plot with his son, Jonathan, to kill him. And so David has to flee. He's, he's on the run. He knows he cannot stay near Saul. And so while he's on the run, he's got to worry about King Saul trying to kill him. He's also fighting the historical enemies of the Israelite nation. He is, he is fighting the Philistines. We read that he's fighting the Amalekites. And so it's, it's Easy to understand how David could pen these words in Psalm 18. He knew the words, no good deed goes unpunished, probably better than anyone else. He's doing the things he was asked to do, and yet he is suffering in trouble and sorrow. That we read in verse 3. Trouble and sorrow. And so what else can he do? What? He, he's, he's, he's in anguish. He's, he's, he's frustrated. He's... There's so much that's going on. He probably doesn't understand all of what's happening. So he cries out to God. Verse 4, then I called upon the name of the Lord. And this probably wouldn't be the first time he's done this. You see, if we read the, the words that the psalmist has written, it, it comes from somebody who knows the riches of God's grace. And he could confidently say, he opens with, I love the Lord. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. So what does this mean for us today? So Psalm 116 depicts not just a, a, a genuine and emotional love for God, but a, a love that is grounded in reason. Love's not something you fall into. It's not a, not a feeling. It's a choice that you make. It's a response. And in our relationship with God, our love is a response to God's love. 1 John 4.19 says, We love God because He first loved us. And so as Christians, when we choose to spend time in God's Word, we will grow in affection and love towards Christ. We will have an anchor that will hold us secure in the storms. 
Don't be deceived. We don't preach a prosperity gospel here at Providence. In fact, the Psalms are full of lamentations of godly men, men who suffer troubles, men who suffer affliction, men who follow God's word, and yet they're still suffering in this world. But they choose to love God. Now, before Courtney and I were married, we received marriage counseling, and the pastor told us, remember your commitment to love one another, and that our, our love was a choice, a commitment to put God first, to put Christ at the center, to sacrifice ourselves for each other. And there will be times when we won't feel like honoring those commitments. And if you've been married for any length of time, you've gone through those difficult times. And yet we needed to go back and remember that we committed to love each other. It wasn't a feeling. It was a commitment that we made. And in the attic of our house, uh, Courtney actually keeps a box of the cards and the letters that we've written to each other. Uh, And it's hard to know for sure that if the reason we have fewer cards later in life is because of technology, with email and and texting, or or just uh, we, we don't write each other as much as we we once did. But, but I can tell you, if you look at the earlier cards, of course we wrote that we, we love each other, but they tend to be more superficial uh, about the reasons that we love each other. But over time, the language becomes richer. Now it can describe how Courtney is a godly mother. She's made sacrifices. She raises our children in a godly discipline. There's a richer language that we can use as you spend time with each other. And you look at the psalmist, and he has spent time with the Lord. The psalmist knows what it's like to have the Lord deliver him. And so it should encourage us. It should encourage us to draw closer to a personal God. He's a God who cares for us. He's a God that listens and responds to us. He is a God that is moved to compassion. We serve a God who wept. Jesus wept. He was fully man who had emotions just like we experience. He saw the death of Lazarus, and he was moved with emotion and compassion. Our God is moved when he sees his people suffer. But at the same time that Jesus was fully man, he was fully God as well. And as one who was fully God, he had the power to deliver Lazarus from the dead. And so that leads to the second point of the message, which is that our God delivers. So you have a God who listens but we also have a God who delivers. Now, after David was anointed, God could have removed Saul much earlier from the, pic- the picture. He could have put David on the throne. But because of how David experienced God's protection and faithfulness in the trials, imagine the confidence that David has in God's promises. Pastor John introduced the Psalms a few months ago, and he asked the question, why study the Psalms? I'd encourage you to go back and, and, and listen to the sermon in its entirety, but one of the reasons that he said was that there is doctrinal complexity in these psalms. So we see the fullness of who God is, and we see why we worship him. Listen to the words that David wrote, in, again, in Psalm 18. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God and my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation. God is the same horn of salvation for David as he is for you and anyone who puts their faith in God. And so we can possess that same affection for God that David had in his heart. We occasionally sing the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Can you imagine if David was able to sing that song today? Well, he can. But imagine if he was here singing the song, how it would ring. His voice would resonate when he reads just the third stanza. 
Listen to this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. David experienced that. He felt what it was like for God's truth to triumph through him. So his battles, through these battles, his faith grew in a crucible. And he could agree with Job when Job said, when he tests me, I shall come forth as gold. And so now this, this comfort that, that should come, when we read in the following verses, verse 8, Thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from failing. You see, David knows what that's like. David knows what it's like to have God's deliverance. But whenever David experienced a trial or an enemy, he knew that he could confidently pray and ask for God's deliverance because he experienced God's faithfulness to his promises. And that's the first sub-point that you have in your, in your notes there. God delivers on his promises. You see, David asked specifically for deliverance from his enemies. He asked that God would give him the next. And he's not using metaphorical language. David was engaged in real battles, physical battles. Yes, there were spiritual battles, but he was fighting the enemies of the Israelites. But yet David could rest on the very real promise that when Samuel anointed him as king, the word says the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. See, God had granted his very presence to David. And so David could cling to this very real manifestation of God's promise. And so remember in the introduction I mentioned that God was faithful to not only deliver individuals, but he was faithful to deliver the nation of Israel. So God made lots of promises to the nation of Israel. I'm just going to read a couple for the sake of time. But we can read in Exodus 3, chapter, verses 7 and 8. This is when God is talking to Moses uh, at the burning bush. And he says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, but I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God has promised that he will deliver them, and he's promised that he will bring them into the land of Canaan. Of course, later we see that they completely uh, forget these promises, they, they reject God, and they end up wandering around in the desert for 40 years. But God is still faithful that he will deliver on his promises. Later on, uh, we read again that after Moses first asked Pharaoh to let the people go, God again says, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You will know this, that I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. I will give you the land that I swore to, to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you. And so you see, God was faithful not just to deliver individuals and this psalmist out of his distress. He was faithful to deliver the Israelites. The other thing, though, that God delivers us from is ourselves. God delivers us from ourselves. And as you read Psalms 116, a little further, we get into verse 11, where the psalmist said in haste, all men are liars. Now, again, we don't, we don't know the author of the psalm, and so we don't know the exact context or, or the environment in which he was, was, was saying this and, and maybe why he was lashing out in anger. It could have been if we use the previous psalm to, to illustrate this text. Even David, we, we could imagine David thinking about this uh, of Samuel. 
hey, Samuel, you know, what's going on? You told me that I was going to be king. You know, you anointed me, and look at this, look at this mess I'm in. But yet, despite the or despite our, 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 our rashness, the way we sometimes lash out at God, God is still faithful to deliver us from ourselves. Verse 6 here tells us that the Lord preserves the simple. Right? The Lord preserves the simple. This root simple uh, means open, and, and it can have a negative connotation of a fool. Somebody, somebody who's simple is a fool because a fool would trust whatever somebody says. But we should be fools for Christ. We should be fools for God. We should trust whatever he says because he has been faithful to deliver on his promises. We have seen this from the beginning of Scripture to today, and we know this will be true in the future, that we can trust him when he says he will be faithful to deliver us. He will deliver our souls. See, our faith can be weak, and we can see that in the psalmist here. He's doubting at times. And he's lashing out. But yet in verse 7 and 8, he says, Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And this leads to the third point, which is our salvation in Christ. So we've looked at the deliverance for the individual psalmist. We've looked at the deliverance for the nation of Israel. But these deliverances all help us understand our deliverance in Christ. If we look in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, we read where Paul is writing to the early church, and he's encouraging the early church not to lose heart. Because at the time, the church was being persecuted for their faith. They were being cast into jail. They were tortured for professing Christ. Just listen to what Paul himself wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 23. I have been in prison more frequently. I have been flogged more severely. I have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toil and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. You see, Paul knew suffering. And he could say the same words that the psalmist said, the snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Paul, this could be Paul, but he persevered. He knew the reason for his suffering, and he was gracious to give that reason to us. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. You see, the suffering that Paul experienced brought glory to God and manifested Jesus to the world. Paul was sustained through this suffering because he knew that he was suffering for the gospel. He knew that affliction was temporary, but Christ is eternal. And so he places his hope in Christ and the resurrection. And he knew that Christ had conquered death, and death is not the end. When Christ conquered death, we can also share in that victory. 
Because death is not the end, it's just a gateway to the ever, an everlasting life with God the Father, the psalmist can say, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He continues to encourage the church when he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Now, Paul, he's, he's not trivializing the suffering, the very real suffering that Christians go through, but he does offer words of hope and encouragement. And this hope that, that Paul has is the same hope that the psalmist has. And in fact, Paul even quotes Psalm 116. He quotes Psalm 116, verse 10, when he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed. And so I spoke. We also believe, and so also we speak. And so Christian today, the object of our faith is the same object of Paul. It's the same as David, as Moses, as every believer who has put their trust in Christ. We serve Christ. We put our trust in him. We're not to focus on the things of this world. We are to look to Jesus. Because life on this earth, earth will soon be passed. The life of David was just for a moment. And we must decide today how we are going to spend eternity. And I encourage you not to lose sight of Christ's power, his glory, and his resurrection. And so that leads to the final point of the message, which is our response. How do we respond to this message, to this gospel that has just been preached? Well, the psalmist himself tells us, in the, in the words of the psalm itself, it says, call on the name of the Lord. Our first response is to call on the name of the Lord. If you are an unbeliever here today, you are on a path of destruction. This message of calling on the Lord is for you as well. And you may be facing afflictions in this world, but it is nothing compared to what is to come. And regardless of what you're suffering now, it is still an act of mercy compared to eternal separation from God in hell. But there is hope. There is hope because you can call on the Lord and know that he will hear and he will listen. He is alive and he wants a personal relationship with you. And this same God who hears you is faithful to deliver on his promise. And what is that promise? We read in scripture that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is a promise that you can trust. We have salvation from the power, from the penalty of sin, but this cup of salvation can only be enjoyed by those who put their trust in him. And so if you are here today and you have not called on the Lord, if you do not know him in a personal way as your Savior and your Lord, please do so today. Call on him before leaving this church. I and anyone next to you would be grateful and would love that opportunity to pray with you. And if you're a believer, if you're a believer, you still have the same instruction, call on the name of the Lord. And in fact, in verse 2, we read this, I will call on him as long as I live. Now, what promises can you claim when you call on the name of the Lord? There are, there are too many to list, but I'll list a few of them here. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, we can have the assurance of God's presence. It's a promise. 
Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can have the assurance of God's love. 1 John 4.16 So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in him and love abides in God. And God abides in him. We have his presence. We have his love. We can pray for peace. Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can pray for God to deliver us from temptation. Certainly David was tempted to lash out. We even see him respond to that temptation. We might be tempted to worry. We might be tempted to be afraid. We might be tempted to to reject the the assembling of ourselves together when we're going to this uh, this situation. But God can deliver us from temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13, And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There are many, many, many other promises that can be found throughout the Bible. Search them out. The promises of God are treasures, and there's no limit to them. No limit. Galatians 5.23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. There's no limit to how many times we can ask for these things. God will grant us patience as many times as we ask for it. He's a limitless well of forgiveness. If we genuinely repent of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the second thing is our response, in addition to calling on the name of the Lord, the psalmist says here in verse 16, truly I am thy servant. Truly I am thy servant. So your, your last point there is that we should possess a servant's heart. We should possess a servant's heart. We have been redeemed by Christ. Without his deliverance, we would be lost and shackled to sin. But he freed us. He freed us from this sin. He made us alive in him, and he redeemed us for a purpose. We are his children. He is our father, and our purpose is to serve him and glorify him forever. We are new creatures with a capacity to praise God and sing with the psalmist, hallelujah. In fact, the psalmist is so grateful for what God has delivered him from that he says it not once, but twice in this psalm, I will pay my vows unto the Lord. Now, again, we don't know exactly what the psalmist intends to do, um, but we do know that he's not doing this as a means of payment. His paying his vows to the Lord is not an exchange for what the Lord has done. He's expressing a gratitude for the debt that has already been paid. You see, our sin debt was atoned by Jesus' death on the cross once and for all. There's nothing that we can do to add to that or take away what he accomplished. We sing the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And we owe our very lives to him. But this expression of gratitude to God should also manifest itself in our relationship with others. So let me read the parable. You're probably familiar with this parable, but I'll I'll read it to you. The parable of the unmerciful servant. This is when Peter comes to Jesus and he asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. But this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, he grabbed him and he began to choke him. And he said, pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had this man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged. And they went and they told their master everything that had happened. Now the servant was called in, and the master said, You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? And in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should be paid back all that he owed. Jesus says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Now, what are some of these examples today of how we can pay our vows for God's mercy? So if you've been part of the one-to-one Bible reading this summer, you've probably already made it through Romans chapter 12. If you haven't gotten there, you better speed it up, because uh, next Monday, eight days from now, uh, we're going to be recapping our our one-to-one Bible reading through Romans. But Romans chapter 12 is just full of phrases, full of phrases, how... Christians can demonstrate God's mercy to others. So I'll just read a couple of these. Romans 12, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Perhaps you might consider how you can invite someone over to your house. Just for dinner. Just show hospitality to the saints. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Commit to attending the funeral of someone you know who's lost a loved one. Maybe go to the graduation party of a saint who has just graduated from high school. Live life together. Rejoice and weep with each other. Have a personal relationship with each other. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Again, this is more open to personal circumstances and and certainly on issues of doctrinal integrity and truth, we should defend the word of God. But if there are issues of preference that don't really have eternal significance, consider someone else's needs before your own. And so there are lots and lots of ways that we can agree with the psalmist when he says, I will pay back my vows. And as we close the message today, we're going to enter a a time of reflection. And if you are an unbeliever, please consider what I said earlier. Take advantage of this time to call on the Lord for salvation. If you're a believer, reflect on your own heart. Are you truly grateful for all that the Lord has done? Are you living your life in service for him? Are you treating others as Jesus would treat them? Are you forgiving them, demonstrating the gracious forgiveness that you yourself have experienced? And do you say, as the psalmist says, praise the Lord.